0: Welcome back to Radio Free Palestine. Uh, you are listening to CKT 94. Point three FM in Montreal and on uh, globally on five continents, tens of stations, including the Radio Pacifica network in the United States, are rebroadcasting us right now. Radio Free Palestine in commemoration of the 70th year of the ongoing Palestinian Nakba and the demonstrations happening right now in Gaza uh, for the right of return, the great marches of return, um, demonstrations in in Jerusalem uh, against the American movement of uh, the embassy to occupied uh, Jerusalem um, this hour that we're coming up right now we are on hour um, eight of uh, the broadcast um, we have special guests with us uh, on this hour mainstream media in the West both government funded and corporate run are unquestionably imperialist uh, when we analyze their coverage of Palestine and the Arab peoples in general but what about the so-called independent or alternative media in the West do they suffer the same malice? Do media outlets like Democracy Now! and The Intercept differ much from their mainstream counterparts And when it comes to promoting Western expan- exceptionalism and imperialist interventions? Our panel for the next hour is titled Finding Solutions When Independent Media Fails to Oppose Imperialism. I'm your host for the hour, Leith Marouf, and with me are three journalists who are outspoken media critics. Rania Khalik is an American-Lebanese independent journalist, writer, political commentator. She currently hosts the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure with Kevin Gustozola at shadowproof.com. And you can follow her on Twitter by her name and her website. Website, RaniaKhalik.com. Good morning, Rania from uh, Beirut. Hey, Liz. It's Ben Norton is a journalist and writer his work focuses primarily on US poli- foreign policy the Middle East media criticism and movements for economic and social justice he previously published with the intercept and is currently working for the Real News Network good morning Ben
1: glad to be here thanks for having me
0: and our final guest this hour is Max Blumenthal an American author journalist and blogger he is the author of two uh, books including Goliath life and the loathing in greater Israel published in 2013. He also co-directed, along with Dan Cohen, the new documentary titled Killing Gaza that you can watch right now on Vimeo starting today. Good morning, Max.
1: Good to be with you.
0: Thank you all for joining us on this historic uh, broadcast and day. As journalists yourselves, can you each provide an example of how are independent medias failing to oppose imperialism in the West? Who should speak for? Who
2: do you want to start with? <laughs> yeah,
0: so maybe, maybe we'll start with uh, Rania, I guess.
2: Okay, well, I have, you know, as somebody who's based in the Middle East now, um, I found it very upsetting and disappointing to see that much of the independent uh, media outlets that I, that basically shaped my own journalistic. Um, uh, take on, on things in the Middle East, like democracy now, and like many of the people who are not the intercept have really failed on the issue of imperialism these last several years. They've been pretty consistently okay on Palestine. When it comes to the rest of the region, um, they've really missed the ball and in many cases provided cover for U.S., um, strategic ambitions in the region, especially with respect to Syria, uh, and in some cases, Iraq. Uh, and also Libya in terms of the U.S. um, attempts to overthrow regimes, specifically in Syria and Libya, uh, which has been disastrous. And as a result, I mean, I've just been really upset. It seems like a lot of the people that they've had on have been just a parade of of warmongers, especially on democracy now, which is so unfortunate, that there's been a parade of people who are not only pro-opposition in Syria, but pro-U.S. intervention in Syria, which is the antithesis of anti-imperialism.
0: And uh, what's your take on this, Ben?
1: Well, unfortunately, I think it's not necessarily new. What's interesting about the question of Palestine is that when it comes to opposing elements of Israeli aggression inside Palestine, uh, you can frequently get an alliance between right-wing Islamist forces and progressive secular leftist forces. However, when you leave Israel's borders, it's, you know, it doesn't actually have borders, but when you leave the borders of occupied Palestine, you begin to see that breakdown. And, and then Syria is a really good example of this. Israel has spent the past several years attacking Syria incessantly. According to the head of the Israeli Air Force Command, he's acknowledged that in just a few months last year, Israel launched thousands of operations inside Syria. Israel has bombed Syria at least 100 times. That's a very conservative estimate. I mean, every week or every two weeks, Israel violates Lebanese airspace to bomb Syria. And you now see elements that support the Syrian opposition who are openly cheering on Israeli airstrikes because they're targeting Hezbollah, the Syrian army, and Iranian forces. Um, And unfortunately, that's not too surprising at this point because these are from the same people uh, who have openly lobbied for the U.S. government, which destroyed Iraq, which destroyed Libya, which has played the key role in destroying and destabilizing many of these countries, these are the people who have lobbied for the U.S. and the U.K., Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey to destabilize and overthrow the government in Syria. And regardless of what you think about that government, uh, we've seen again and again and again the absolute failure of regime change. And, you know, you'll have some progressive media outlets that might... Claim that they oppose regime change. But then, as Rania said, they'll bring on guest after guest who have lobbied for regime change. And and we're talking about people who are not progressive anyway. And, and we can get more into this exact specifics later. I know we have an hour here, but I'll just begin really briefly mentioning an, a recent example in April in which Democracy Now! brought on the guest Moaz and Beg. Um, Beg, of course, has been through many horrible things. I mean, uh, as, as an example of just how inhumane and criminal the U.S. government is, he was tortured by the U.S. government. Um, but Beg is by no means a progressive figure, especially when it comes to Syria. This is someone who is actually a British intelligence asset who got support from British intelligence services to go into Syria in the early years of the conflict and embed himself with Syrian rebels, and, and he acknowledged that he helped Syrian rebels fight the Syrian government. Of course, these are far-right, hyper-sectarian Islamist groups that he acknowledged that he was with. And in April, democracy had him on to openly call for a no-fly zone in Idlib, Idlib, of course, being the last remaining rebel-held province in Syria. Idlib is controlled by rebranded al-Qaeda, Jabhat Fattah Hasham, which is now part of this group, Hayat Tahrir Hasham. Democracy Now! did not once acknowledge in the entire segment that Idlib is controlled by Al-Qaeda. They did not once acknowledge that religious and ethnic minority groups have been ethnically cleansed from Idlib. These are groups that have, had been living in Idlib for many years, for generations, and they were ethnically cleansed by these rebel groups. And now this is territory that's occupied by Turkey and its proxies. So there are so many examples we getting, can get into, but that's just one brief example. Of how these progressive media outlets they think they're being subversive and they think they're being progressive but at the end of the day they're actually giving a platform to people who were uh assets of british intelligence services and going over to syria to fight against the syrian government in alliance with far-right islamist groups that again have been backed by not just the u.s saudi arabia and qatar but also by israel israel has supported many of these rebel groups as well and you cannot claim to be pro-palestinian and then support israel's actions outside of the the occupied palestinian borders
0: and i guess max uh if you have a brief word on examples of how our independent media is failing to oppose imperialism
3: Well, well first of all i would say that i feel like um in many ways we've won the argument um on Israel Palestine, you can look if you're in New York at the cover of the New York Daily News today, that shows Ivanka Trump and says "Daddy's Little Ghoul." Uh, you know, she's posing by the Jerusalem by the new U.S. embassy in Jerusalem while Israel massacres 55 people. That's that's a New York tabloid. I mean, that's a tabloid that's been, you know, in the past practically celebrating Israeli wars. Uh, the the whole tide has shifted on the Israel-Palestine discussion. And I I would say that, you know, having been involved in this, in progressive media uh, for almost 10 years, uh, I had to fight tooth and nail just to get stuff published on this. So, you know, progressive media hasn't even really been that much of a leader on that issue. Now it's kind of following the general trend. There's a Republican president who's widely hated, who's a reality show star, who's, you know, an un Just an inveterate sadist when it comes to Palestinians, Uh, Netanyahu's president, uh, prime minister, just a right-winger, supported by right-wing billionaires like Adelson, Israel's mowing down protesters who are taking on Gandhian tactics. It's just, it's so appalling and disgusting. How could you not oppose this? And you have to oppose it with kind of, you can easily oppose it with a liberal human rights narrative. Israel kills protesters. Uh, Human rights are being violated. But there's very little understanding of the geopolitical situation that enabled Israel to get diplomatic cover um, in the region and how this relates to an issue like Syria. And I would say that there have been more segments on Democracy Now! promoting regime change in Syria, which is a pro-Israel and pro-neocon and simply pro-CIA agenda in the past year than there have been dedicated to Palestine. Um, and, you know, I'm not personally upset that they simply stopped having me on, but why do they never have someone like Ali Abu Nema on from the Electronic Intifada, who's the closest thing we have to an Edward Said today? Why have they stopped? I've realized that there really is not an independent media. Um, you know, when I started looking at some of the foundation donors to Democracy Now, or looking at Piero Midyar, who is the billionaire eBay, uh, you know, tech, uh, baron who founded The Intercept, and I look at his background and his involvement, um, across the globe in various, um, intrigues from Ukraine to Philippines to Syria. Um, and I look at journalists who work for The Intercept claiming that they're independent. Um, you know, I think that's kind of phony. I'm not begrudging anyone who works for him. It's hard to find jobs in journalism at all today. But, you know, every outlet is limited by their supporters, and foundations have played the role in, in many respects that the CIA used to play, for front groups like the Congress of Cultural Freedom, in trying to establish, an, in the past, an anti-communist left. And now they play the role of consolidating an anti-imperialist left through media organizations, uh, whether it's The Nation, which I still respect, or Democracy Now!, or The Intercept, which is not even supported by a non-profit, or which is supported by a billionaire who has an ulterior agenda across the world.
0: So you brought up the issue of the uh, Intercept uh, Max and I guess we can ask Ben here at one point uh, Ben your cur- uh, in your career you wrote for the Intercept the website that was founded by Glenn glenwald after he received control of the Snowden files leaked from the CIA why do you think a publication like the Intercept would fall from such heights to advocating for American invasion of Syria today
1: Well the thing about The Intercept and many of these progressive media outlets is they would not say that they support an American invasion. I mean, people would be kind of evasive. So, for instance, one of the primary intercepts of the writer uh, in, uh, right, uh, writers at The Intercept is Murtaza Hussein. And Murtaza would not openly say that he supports U.S.-led regime change, but he would openly say that he supports the Syrian opposition. Uh, he has openly said that very often. He's written tons of articles Supporting the Syrian opposition. And of course, the Syrian opposition is backed by the US, the UK, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey. Um, so frequently, what we have is people who think they can have their cake and eat it too. And it reminds me of the protests against the US led NATO war in Libya, um, in which Lib- Libya was destroyed as a state. Still today, seven years after the 2011 NATO led war, uh, Libya is a total dysfunctional failed state where there are open-air slave markets. Uh, You know, Black Africans were ethnically cleansed from the country. They were, uh, in some cases, enslaved, put in cages, killed. Uh, And, of course, we had many elements of the so-called progressive left who claimed that they opposed NATO intervention, but then also staunchly supported and advocated on behalf of the very rebels who were backed by NATO. So we see this similar sleight of hand intellectually and politically today and at the Intercept you know as Max mentioned I wouldn't necessarily say it's fallen from you know some kind of higher place the Intercept has done a lot of really good reporting on domestic U.S. politics they've done good reporting on the U.S. police state on U.S. so-called national security etc on corruption money and politics but when it comes to issues outside of U.S. borders they are limited by the same thing that all of these so-called progressive media outlets are. And of course, as Max mentioned, it does not help that they're funded entirely, bankrolled by a billionaire who himself has political and economic interests. And we can't sit here and, and talk all day as journalists about the influence of money in politics and the influence of corporate donors and foundations and then not and then pretend as if that money doesn't have an influence on the Intercept. Of course it has an influence, and on all of these media outlets that are funded by billionaires or foundations. Um, So when it comes to the issue of Syria, I think if you look at the Intercept's coverage, the Intercept has pretty consistently, almost entirely, echoed the kind of mainstream U.S. government narrative on Syria. So it's not necessarily that, that, that this coverage has gotten worse, I mean, it has gotten worse because they published more on Syria, but they never had an example of it really being better. And I mean I I have contributed a few times to to the Intercept and they have let me write a few big things, for instance, a piece on the war in Yemen, and they've consistently actually done very good reporting on Yemen. But Syria is one of these issues that I think it divides the, the wheat from the chafe, and we'll see again how people will claim to oppose US intervention. But then they'll support proxies of the U.S. in Syria who are far-right sectarian Islamist forces who have committed horrific war crimes against civilians, ethnically cleansed religious and ethnic minorities. And we're, we're left in this situation where, uh, in order to prove their political purity, they'll churn out all these pieces, attacking so-called Assadists and Assad apologists. So Mehdi Hassan re- re- recently, for instance, wrote a, a piece about this in The Intercept. Many Hassan has done a lot of really good work. Um, he also happens to work for Al Jazeera, which is funded by Qatar. It's basically Qatari regime media. Um, so they have people at the Intercept who have done a lot of other great work. But on the issue of Syria, their their line is basically the same as the progressive elements of the U.S. State Department. And again, we have to interrogate that fact. And that doesn't mean that all these websites are complete trash, but it means that they're being much more than derelict in their duty. They're actually doing a huge disservice claiming to be part of the anti-war, yet alone the anti-imperialist left. Well, on these really key issues, one of the most key issues of the past seven years, which has destroyed the state of Syria, which is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, which is further destabilizing the region and which could lead to an even larger war. Uh, Israel has you know, played such a, a key role in this war, and Israel is bombing Iranian and Syrian and Lebanese forces, uh, it could lead to an even wider regional war. And I'm worried that many of these media outlets will continue their horrendous coverage and and will continue caping for imperialism.
0: On the subject of Um, um, Sorry, on on the subject of uh, the war on Syria and the role of independent media in advocating for invasion and intervention by uh, Western powers, uh, Rania you have uh, written and produced extensively. Um, Why do you think uh, the current situation is so different than in 2003 uh, leading up to the invasion of Iraq when independent media like Democracy Now! were embedded in the anti-war movement? I think we lost uh, Rania's call here we're going to try to connect Rania back on Um, so uh, I guess I'm going to just move to Max here Um, we hope we hope to have journalist uh, Aaron Matty with us today. Uh, he worked for Democracy Now! before he came out uh, condemning their coverage of the war in Syria. Uh, unfortunately, he's uh, traveling and couldn't join us. Um, so, Max, uh, you were a regular guest on Democracy Now! up until 2014. In your opinion, how harmful is the coverage of Democracy Now! and the intercept to the mobilization of anti-war movements in the West?
3: Well, um I think, extremely harmful because they're looked to as the adversarial brand of progressive media. Um, and it's it's not just what they're covering or the guests that they're having on. Um, it's what they're not covering. And so you won't have a guest concisely explaining how the U.S. enacted a billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar project to arm Salafi Jihadi rebels. You won't hear a guest If you do, it's very, it happens very rarely. You won't have a guest explaining concisely how those so called rebels played a pivotal role in driving the deaths of possibly hundreds of thousands and a refugee crisis. And you won't understand how the U.S. partnered with Qatar, with Saudi Arabia, the U.K., uh, to enact a neoconservative program which has been on the table um, since the Iraq war or before uh, to basically shatter the the Middle East. Um, I hear Rania's voice. So, I I guess we could just turn it over to her and I can come back
0: to my thoughts. Oh, um, maybe, yeah, well, okay. So, Rania, uh, my question to you was, uh, you've written and produced extensively on the subject of uh, the war on Syria and the role of independent media in advocating for invasions and interventions by Western powers. So why do you think the current situation is so different than in 2003, leading up to the invasion of Iraq, when independent media, like the Democracy now were embedded in the anti war movement?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of things going on there. One is I think the war in Iraq was much more straightforward in terms of what the U.S. did. You had a U.S. invasion where U.S. forces actually went into Iraq and overthrew the government and it occupied the country. Whereas with Syria, you've had something that's been framed and, and sold and advertised to the public as humanitarian intervention. Uh, where the U.S. is simply playing the role of just you know giving some light weaponry to these various rebel groups, um, and not playing a, like an is not playing a direct role in Syria, and so it's much more confusing. And also, Syria was portrayed as a place where we had an uprising, and I think this is what really impacts or confuses, I should say, the progressive left in the U.S. because. It was framed as a an uprising of, you know, democratic Arab bring up you know, people who just wanted basic reforms and more freedom of speech. And what practice in their right mind wouldn't support that, right? But in reality, what you had in Syria is you had yes, you had some people who were, pro- who were protesting for, for democratic reforms, but you also had right wing Islamist elements in this uprising that got armed pretty early and were committing violence also against the government, and this is to This is who the U.S. ultimately and its allies ultimately ended up backing and affirming in Syria, as as Ben mentioned earlier, these right wing, hyper sectarian, salafi jihadi groups. Um, But of course, in the mainstream press in the U.S., you have this being presented as, you know, this is a progressive uprising. And that's really, um, and you know, I think the progressive left in the U.S. has this. You know, this sort of fantastical desire to 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 support anything that seems like a democratic uprising anywhere in the world, and and that's how it was glorified and romanticized. Uh, It's really easy to support, you know, revolutions in other countries without really understanding what they are. So I think that's one reason why it was so different from the sort of more straightforward conflict in Iraq. Is really the confusion and the very manipulated and deceptive coverage around Syria that portrayed. What was happening there is an uprising against the authoritarian regime rather than, you know, a foreign-funded collection of jihadist jihadists trying to overthrow a government with extreme violence and hyper-sectarian agendas. Um, so that's one. Uh, and I think the um, the other reason it's so different now than it was with Iraq is that there is a lack of an- as an anti-war movement in the U.S. There, of course, are some groups like ANSWER and others that do protest wars pretty consistently. But the anti-war movement, for the, for the most part, was killed, was died. really so died a, a, uh, under the presidency of Barack Obama because there was so much hope that there was going to be so much change under him. And so ever since Obama became president, you've really seen the anti-war movement become extremely weak and almost non-existent. So I think that's another reason why um, it's so different. Um, and then also all the things that both Max and Ben have mentioned when it comes to the funding issue – Uh, There's a lot of agendas at play here that we don't really understand or talk about openly, but I think funding makes a difference
0: as well. Max, uh, Rania just mentioned the confusion uh, caused uh, by the Arabs' autumn, and uh, we were speaking before she came back on the phone in terms of. what are your thoughts about uh, how harmful is the coverage of Democracy Now and the Intercept uh, to the anti-war movement in the West?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors. Oh, you um, have oh sorry, go ahead. sorry. There are so many factors in play here, um, and you know, one I, one that I would point to is the role of Qatar Qatari media. It's not just Al Jazeera, which has been promoting uh, regime change in Syria. And just the general narrative of the Gulf on Syria and other issues through cutouts like AJ Plus, but also um, Al Arabi or the New Arab, uh, the Middle East Eye. I. I mean, these are Qatari cutouts. Um, American Muslims for Palestine and the role of um, Sunni Islamists in the in, in the Palestine solidarity movement have set a really clear line declaring that you really can't go against the regime change agenda too strongly in Syria within the movement, or you'll be blacklisted. Um, And these are elements that line up with Erdogan's Turkey and Qatar. Um, So sometimes they'll be against Saudi Arabia, but they have sort of a separate agenda. Then you have the role of organizations like the, the International Socialist Organization, the ISO, which is really popular in grad schools and on campus. They're funded through Haymarket Books which poses as a radical bookseller, and I've done work with them. I've done a great, I did a great book tour with them in Ali Abunima, but they published recently, Uh, they've begun publishing pro-regime change uh, books on Syria. They're funded through the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, which is another foundation, Uh, you know, it's another uh, nonprofit funded by extremely wealthy foundations, which are trying to set the line and declare that the left cannot be Anti-imperialist, uh, for whatever reason. I mean, this is a Trotskyist organization, so they also have a clear ideology about regime change and permanent revolution. Um, so the, the the narrative on Syria has been directed against the left, whereas the narrative on Iraq was, you know, nationalistic and patriotic and about fighting evil. In this case, it's about spreading freedom, um, and it's been marketed through groups like through media groups like Vice which take on the aesthetic of independent media and radicalism um, and alternative hipsterism um, to smuggle in a neoconservative agenda. Just take a look at Vice's Syria issue. Many of the people that have been around these groups have formed a kind of echo chamber. And I think that there's an operation going on with a slush fund for attacks. And this organization has attacked anyone on the left who has contravened or contradicted the Washington Consensus and the dominant narrative on Syria as well as Russia. And it's forced many of us into a position where the only place to get a platform is RT, which is a Russian-funded outlet. And so then when you go and try to educate people about the role of the White Helmets, which is a humanitarian interventionist scam designed to encourage left and liberal support for regime change, it's a rescue group, but it's also an international lobbying group with a very powerful public relations arm known as the Syria campaign, supported by a exiled Syrian billionaire named Iman Ostari, when you go talk about this group, they'll just just simply you can simply be called a Russian conspiracist because it's it's so difficult to find a platform um, because of the amount of attacks you'll get. I've never been attacked more harshly than I was when I released an article in Alternet. Uh, a, a, one of the banner progressive media outlets that was totally factual, investigating the White Helmets and demonstrating how they have this powerful PR, PR arm that writes op-eds, that generates coverage on democracy now, um, that furnished an uh, interview and article to Murtaza Hussein at The Intercept. Uh, when I did that, It wasn't even that after I published the article, I came under harsh attack. Before I published the article, I started receiving threatening phone calls and letters from professors like Danny Postel at the University of Denver or Idris Ahmad at the University of Sterling, warning me not to publish this or I'll be destroyed. And then a who's who of media uh, personalities, foreign correspondents, I fell under attack from them and this echo chamber. Has never stopped attacking me, Ben, and Rania, and other journalists and people in media are intimidated because of this. So you have these attacks. And I also mentioned this PR firm, the Syria Campaign. It's founded out of Avaz. Avaz has been funded. It's, a lot of people listening will know what Avaz is. They do a lot of social justice campaigns around the world. They're funded by a billionaire. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go along with all of the George Soros conspiracies, but he is the funder of this organization uh, through the Open Society Institute, which pushes regime change in Eastern Europe primarily. Um, and Ayman Osprey set up this cutout of a called the Syria Campaign. Now, Ayman Osprey is notable because he also funds another group called Syria Deeply, which is one of the primary media outlets that was set up... For the Syrian uprising, if you can call it that, or the Syrian civil war, to push regime change. And do you know who else funds Syria deeply, to the tune of five hundred thousand dollars? And this is actually somewhat concealed. Pierre Omidyar, founder of the Intercept. Uh, Pierre Omidyar has also funded. Uh, Pierre Omidyar has also funded regime change groups in Ukraine. Pierre Omidyar. Uh, has also partnered with the National Endowment for Democracy, which is the regime change arm of the State Department across the globe. And he owns an outlet in the Philippines, Rappler, which is allied with the right-of-center uh, right, right of center Arroyo family and, the, and a wing of the Filipino intelligence services. So this is not... A, independent figure who owns the Intercept, and it's very dangerous that Pierre Omidyar now owns all of the Snowden files. We saw how dangerous this was when last year, as the Syrian civil war is coming to a close, Murtaza Hussein, the writer who has done the most to promote the Syrian regime change narrative and the Syrian opposition, who's basically been cipher for these public relations groups, published a piece which could have changed the course of the war if it had come out several years before. He got an old file that showed a Saudi royal demanding that Jaysh al-Islam, a militia that was implanted in a suburb of Damascus, attack the Damascus airport. And so you, sh- you could clearly see how the Saudis were controlling the Syrian armed opposition and asking them to carry out terror attacks on a sovereign nation to attack an airport. And Murtaza was given this. He framed it completely within the narrative of the Syrian opposition, and it came out several years too late. And they were sitting on it because Pierre Omidyar, a figure who is deeply involved with the American empire, owns all of the Snowden files, And that should be a scandal.
0: You know, maybe to uh, change track right now, we spoke about the problems of uh, the so-called independent media and its um, coverage of uh, imperialist invasions and and expansions. Um, But as we speak right now, some Palestinians who are on general strike are out demonstrating the American regime's move of its embassy to occupy Jerusalem, while others in Gaza are participating in the Great March of Return to reclaim their homes in apartheid Israel. Um, the march comes at a time when the whole region is at the edge of a regional war. Uh, media in the West have obscured the connection between the plight of the Palestinian people and the war on Syria and the possible war on Iran. Um, so, my question to you, Rania, uh, what are the connections that sh- could should concern our listeners uh, and that they should uh, pay attention to? I'm sorry. Can you repeat
2: that one more time?
0: Yeah, uh, we were talking, I was talking about um, the media in the West uh, have obscured the connections between the plight of the Palestinian people, the war on Syria, and the possible war on Iran. Uh, So uh, if you can point our listeners uh, to connections that they should concern themselves with, that they should research more
2: yeah, okay, so this is really hugely important, um, for people who claim to be pro-Palestine is understanding how intertwined all of these conflicts are. Uh, back in, uh, after, uh, 2006, after Hezbollah managed to push Israel out of southern Lebanon, um, it, that was a huge victory in many ways for Hezbollah, and they were an increasingly popular group across the region, across sexual, sectarian lines. Um, and in 2007, the U.S. Uh, under Dick Cheney's command uh, allied with Saudi Arabia to initiate an operation across the region to basically push and promote anti-Shia sentiment to tie in uh, weaken support for his brother, because as well as a Shia group, uh, and it largely worked uh, between you know Saudi and Qataris. Uh, media and local media operations that were supported by the U.S., they were, I mean, they really weren't able to sectarianize the Middle East. And the most crucial aspect of doing this was the war in Syria. The war in Syria uh, caused sectarianism to explode across the Middle East. It was promoted as a war that was being, uh, you know, as a uh, war between an evil Alawite regime that was just genociding the, the majority of the population in Syria. Which is not at all true. Obviously, Syria is a majority of Sunni country. The majority of the Sunni Arab army, or the Syrian Arab army, is Sunni. It wasn't. It's, it has not been a fight between Alawite and Sunni. If anything, it's been a fight between Sunni versus Sunni. Uh, but that's besides the point. The real point here is that uh, much of the war on Syria, uh, and the reason that Syria needs to, you know, has been on the U.S. hit list, is because it's been so crucial to support to this which is probably the strongest group militarily. Uh, the strongest paramilitary group that's capable of acting as a deterrent and actually fighting the Israelis. Uh, and of course Iran is Hezbollah's biggest um you know funder and supporter and Syria has acted really as like a, a bridge between Hezbollah and Iran um and also has you know supported not just Hezbollah but also has given safe haven to leaders of Hamas at least until twenty eleven uh, before you know Hamas uh, some leaders in Hamas turned on the Syrian regime. Uh, but the point is, is that, his, that Syria has played a crucial role in, main, in, the, in, in managing to maintain uh, what's considered resistance in the Middle East to Israeli and U.S. hegemony, which is you know, which is Iran, uh, Syria, and most importantly, Hezbollah, and also Hamas. And so, uh, the war on Syria has, in many ways, been a war also on Palestinian resistance. And unfortunately, what's happened. Not only since the Iraq War, but the Arab um, uprisings of the twenty of twenty eleven and the sort of sectarian tones they took on has made this first We've <laughs> seen like not only a fragmentation in the Middle East along sectarian lines, but that sectarianization has played a massive role in dwindling support among Arabs in the street for Palestine. Because in many cases, people are more preoccupied with their local conflicts and kind of too busy to pay attention to what's going on in Palestine, and also um there's just the sectarianization has really made much of the the uh, agitation in the Middle East between Sunni and Shia and other sects uh where it's a kind of a race, the Palestinian issue so in some cases you know you have Sunnis in Lebanon not all but many you know more concerned about Sunni issues than you know the issue of Palestine and Israel in the south you know um, and the same goes for other areas of the region unfortunately uh, and so that's why so important and crucial to understand that these attacks on countries in the Middle East have so much to do with uh, trying to fracture support for Palestine, um, and that's unfortunately what you see and you saw yesterday. I mean, with, I, you know, as somebody who's based in Lebanon right now, um, who's in the region, yesterday we had this Israeli massacre take place, and as much as people do want to care and maybe still do care to an extent. You just don't see the same level of concern or care about what's happening between Israel and Palestine. You just don't. And you don't see as much support or care in the Arab street, street, among Arabs, whether it's in Iraq, whether it's in Syria, and whether it's in Lebanon. And it's very, very sad, and to a large degree, uh, it's great to see that so many people in the U.S. now, including people who are just basic liberals, and some even some people who are you know, pro-Israel for, for the most part, Uh, Caring about Palestine because of what's taking place and because it's happening under Trump, but unfortunately in the Middle East, um, you just don't see that sort of level of solidarity that you did maybe six or seven years ago. And that has been a huge success, I would say, for imperialist forces.
0: Um, Bringing it back even closer to uh, the situation in Palestine, uh, Max, uh, you've just released a documentary with your uh, colleague, comrade, uh, Dan Cohen, titled uh, Killing Gaza. Uh, people can watch it uh, on Vimeo starting today. Uh, the documentary was filmed uh, right after the 2014 war in Gaza, and uh, you use this uh, title. So, if what happened in 2014 was killing Gaza, what would you call what is happening now in the Strip in the Great March of Return?
3: Yeah, anyone who wants to watch our documentary, which is three years in the making, on Gaza, filmed entirely inside the Gaza Strip, which is one of the most off-limits places in the world. Uh, You can simply go to killinggaza.com. That's killinggaza.com. And you can just click a button and watch it on demand right there. Um, This documentary is not only about Israel's 2014 war, which left 551 children dead, over 2,200 people dead, 100,000 homes destroyed. Um, it's about the systematic destruction of a society, uh, first Palestinian society and then Gaza society, uh, a systematic planned destruction through siege, deprivation, uh, and violence. A cycle. And, and what we really paint a picture of at the end of the day is a psychological war on people of all walks of life, uh, from all walks of life in Gaza. And we show how they have forged this culture of resistance in order to simply survive psychologically. It's not just to resist Israel. It's to maintain their humanity and their dignity, uh, which is being stripped away from them every day. Um, And there is a sense of despair. I was in Gaza earlier this year. There's just a sense of despair among everyone uh, at every level. And the despair actually has deepened um, as a result of these protests when A lot of young men are, I mean, we talked about 51, 55 deaths yesterday, which is shocking, Uh, maybe 58 deaths. It's shocking. But there are actually hundreds of young men who've been injured, um, shot in the legs, um, who require emergency treatment, who may never walk again. And they're just simply going to be crippled for life. You saw scenes of crippled protesters. Um, who've had their legs blown off in wars um, and through occupation soldiers when Gaza was directly occupied. You know, what kind of life will they live when there is no recourse, there is no accountability for Israel? Their protest led to absolutely nothing because of the diplomatic cover Israel gets. Um, You have to start asking yourself, why does Israel get this diplomatic cover? And one of the things that people in the Gaza Strip ask, and what I hear them say, their mantra is, where are the Arabs? Uh, People in Gaza have even said, I don't even consider myself Arab, because they feel so insulted when Egypt and the Gulf states uh, and other Arab countries, Jordan, just simply turn their back and side with the U.S. Um, And in this case, you've seen the Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, side with the US and Trump on every level because they want to go to war with Iran they want to take it to Iran and that's why Syria is so pivotal uh, the Gulf States hoped to turn the tide against Iran in Syria and they failed they failed thanks to Russia and Iran and the Syrian people I think we can say uh, over 100,000 people according to pro opposition monitoring sites died in Syria to defend their country from the most powerful countries in the region and in the world and their proxies.
1: Um,
3: They took so many bodies to defend their sovereignty, and they also were motivated by strong support and solidarity for Palestine and for resisting empire. And so I think that's something we have to take into account when we think about Palestine and we think about the Gaza Strip. Um, and just having had conversations with people in Gaza, uh, they understand, in their words, that Syria has been the victim. Many of them do. I mean, there's no consensus, clear consensus, but many of the people I spoke to there do understand that Syria has been the victim of what they consider an international conspiracy, uh, what we would call um, just simply an intervention through proxy forces or a proxy war. Um, so. I just think we should look at the broader region, and and Rania really explained it very well, why there's so much diplomatic cover for Israel right now, but that's what makes sure that there will be no recourse for these young people who've had their legs blown off in these protests.
0: You're still listening to Radio Free Palestine, the international uh, marathon commemorating the 70th year of Al-Nakba, airing on five continents. Uh, You're listening to CKT 90.3 FM in Montreal right now. I'm with uh, Rania Khalik, Ben Norton, and Max Blumenthal, three journalists who are outspoken media critics. My last question to to the three of you, and uh, maybe we'll start this time with Ben uh, and end with Rania. So Max, you'll be in the middle um, given the, the, the problems we discussed today uh, given that uh, also we are live on radio Pacific uh, stations including WPFW and DC that uh, uh, air usually democracy now in this spot that we just uh, uh, decolonize I guess um, what would be your uh, messages to the listeners of democracy now to the readers of intercept uh, would is a uh, uh, how How can we find solutions to the failings of the independent media and make it oppose imperialism? Is the solution citizen journalism that you guys are doing?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having us on. This has been a great segment, and it's very refreshing to hear a public discussion of this because many people on the left are confused. They've been misled. I was misled for years in this war, and this war there's so much propaganda, it's hard to sift through it. There's even more propaganda, I would say, um, than we hear in the corporate media against the Palestinians. Um, and of course, all of these issues are related. And Syria is the issue where once you start scratching at it, it you begin seeing all of these lies that are exposed very clearly. And, and I think to be you know succinct, there are a few different things we need to keep in mind. One, the, the issue of Palestinian liberation cannot be delinked from the issue of fighting reactionary regimes in the Middle East, specifically the Gulf monarchies. And I say this language carefully because uh, the, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, this is the leading Palestinian resistance group until the end of the Cold War. It's a Marxist-Leninist progressive party, a communist group that was led by figures like Leila Khaled, Rassan um, Kanafani, George Habash and others, uh, the PSLP had a specific analysis of the p- political problems, the contradictions in the Middle East. Not only was the enemy the Zionist regime, the Israeli apartheid regime, the settler colonial project that was implanted by the British and the American empires and has staunchly been supported by the American empire since 1948, but their analysis was also that Palestinians will not be liberated until the reactionary Arab regimes are overthrown. And when they say that, they specifically are referring to the Gulf monarchies and other, you know, uh, Jordan, um, post-Nasser Egypt. Uh, These are regimes, especially in the Gulf, that have, like Israel, been propped up by British and American imperialism since the 1930s when they were consolidated. Uh, Saudi Arabia has played a key role not only as a bastion of support for U.S. military forces and and U.S. political forces, but also uh, Saudi Arabia has funded right-wing sectarian Islamist groups that have attacked not only Palestinians, but also progressive forces uh, and encouraged the sectarianism we see today, fueling the anti-Shia sentiment, the genocide of minorities like Shia and others. Um, And also Saudi Arabia and these other Gulf states helped play a role in the Cold War ideologically of fighting Arab nationalism and communism and any kind of progressive socialist forces. And fast-forwarding to today in the war in Syria, we can see this extremely clearly, where the states that pretended to an extent during the Cold War to kind of support Palestine, Saudi Arabia pretended to support Palestine, today it is 100% in alliance with Israel. Mohammed bin Salman... The new crown prince, who's being whitewashed as a reformer supposedly, visited in the United States and he met with prominent business and political leaders here, he had a meeting with pro-Israel leaders in which he told the Palestinian leadership to shut up, that's his exact language, and to accept the U.S. fake deal for a, a, a carved-up Bantustan that calls itself an independent Palestine. I mean, the Gulf regimes have at every single juncture for the for their entire existence, and since Israel has existed since 1948, they have repeatedly sold out the Palestinians. And when we see the war in Syria, we see another representation of the same problem. So we need to understand that uh, that Israel is part of a larger U.S. imperialist system, along with these Gulf regimes. Bahrain supported Israel's airstrikes in Syria after after applauding Donald Trump for tearing up the Iran deal and a major act of aggression. So when progressives and people throughout the world who, you know, oppose imperialism and want to support national liberation struggles and struggles for uh, just basic human rights against settler colonialist apartheid, uh, when we look at this, we have to understand it as part of a system. Israel is part of an imperialist system, along with Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the United Arab Emirates and that that is an imperialist system that is today bankrolled and and politically supported by the U.S. empire, which is weakening, and partially it's weakening because these wars have failed, because forces of resistance pushed Israel out of Lebanon, forces of resistance pushed the U.S. out of Iraq, and forces of resistance have prevented Syria from total state collapse. And fortunately, I think we can say that because although it's been unfortunate to see how catastrophic the results of U.S. imperialist intervention have been, fortunately, I think we've seen the worst of it. And although there could be another war, at this point, the U.S. is no longer in a position. It could not overthrow the state of Syria. The U.S. lost the war in Syria. Libya was destroyed, and Libya Libya was destroyed, and Syria has not been destroyed. And the lesson of this is that we need to oppose U.S. military intervention everywhere, but also understand what's happening in Syria and these other conflicts as political uh, tragedies that are likewise being enforced by other U.S. proxies, specifically Israel and the Gulf regimes, and they are part of the same system.
0: Max, uh, maybe one minute, because we want one more minute for Rania after. What's what's your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I, I think,
3: you know, I, was, I think... I said what I have had to say. I'm just doing, you know, as a journalist, I'm just kind of trying to continue to do the work that I've been doing and to expand it. I've also, you know, been I was also early on taken in by a lot of the propaganda, the regime change propaganda around Syria, and I'm doing what I can to um, correct that. And I'm, I'm seeking out every platform possible. Um, that's what Killing Gaza is about. It's a completely independent, crowdfunded documentary, basically funded by our friends. I have the Grayzone Project, which you can read at grayzoneproject.com, where we also feature the journalism of Ben and Rania. Um, That's another independently funded outlet. Um, But I'm also not averse to working with state-funded outlets. They'll give me a platform. uh, I would work with El Mayadeen, which is a great Arabic language outlet, which is providing an alternative to Al Jazeera. Um, RT has provided uh, sort of a non-Americanist point of view, um, as Al Jazeera used to do. And I think um, it's really important to expose yourself to English-language, non-Americanist outlets um, just to see what what, what else is out there Um, and to defend uh, those outlets' ability to broadcast inside the U.S. Um, RT, Al Jazeera, and other foreign outlets were just taken off the air in Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. Um, I think they were all taken off the air just as an excuse to take off RT, which is officially demonized and under investigation. I'm just so going gonna... to... The point is to just look for every outlet possible and is, and to do everything you can to keep citizen journalism alive.
0: Last 10 seconds, Rania? Uh,
2: I think Max and Ben pretty much covered it all. So I just kind of, basically what they just said, um, you know, just, put that up you know whatever i just said i agree completely and also i'll add that i do think that people should pay attention to what's happening with iran
0: because that seems to be oh we just lost rania on the last two seconds of her words thank you very much rania thank you max and thank you ben for being with us on radio free palestine